following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. And here is how the Gospel of Matthew tells the story. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, uh, the wise men, the three wise men, I mean, in any telling of the Christmas story, these guys are pretty standard characters, aren't they? I mean, whatever nativity sets you've seen over the past couple of weeks, Christmas plays, Christmas stories, Advent calendars, the three wise men are always there. They're a staple part of the story. And we tend to picture them, or at least I do, as kings. You know, they're often depicted wearing crowns, aren't they? These guys with long, flowing, colorful robes. Uh, usually riding camels tends to be the vehicle of choice. And amazingly enough, we picture them arriving right at the very moment Jesus was born, or at least you know, within a couple of hours of the birth. Amazingly, this journey that probably took months, they, they amazingly turn up on the night and they squeeze into the manger scene there just beside the shepherds, just in time to pose for the official photograph. And then we get our nativity scene and, and, and they're in it even though they may have arrived a long time after Jesus was, was actually born. I think with this kind of stuff, it's a lot of fun to do some myth-busting with the three wise men, and we get to do quite a bit of it today because there's a lot of popular mythology that's grown up around the tradition of the three wise men, captured in carols like We Three Kings of Orient Are, Bearing Gifts We Travel Afar, Field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. And we sing that, and it reinforces a certain idea of who these guys actually were. But the idea in our minds sometimes doesn't bear a lot of resemblance to the story that Matthew tells in his gospel. So as we talk through this story, we'll try and just separate out fact from fiction a little bit with these guys. So, in the first instance, there probably weren't three of them. Um, That's a bit of a shock. I know that's the first Christmas bubble to burst, but you have a look there. Where does it say there were three? Matthew never tells us there were three wise men, only that magi from the east came. 
this is a popular legend or tradition that's grown up that there were three of them. There could have been two. There could have been 50. We don't know. There was more than one. That's about all that we can say. There was a group of some description of these guys. Now, the name that Matthew gives them is Magi. They're not wise men. They're not kings. They are Magi. And that's actually where we get the English word magic from. It's the Greek root of that word, Magi. Now, these, these Magi, they were a particular class of people or a particular group of people in a lot of ancient cultures. They weren't kings, but they worked for the king. So they were part of the royal court, but they weren't kings. I had this discussion the other day with my son Joshua. He was trying to convince me that the, they were kings, that the wise men were kings. I said, no, Josh, there's nowhere in the text that says they're kings at all. He went back to the Greek, and eventually he was, he was convinced that they are not kings. They are magi. So he's getting there. Uh, but the, these, these guys were like royal court advisors, if you like, to the king. They were, they were consultants to the king. But they weren't, they weren't advisors in the sense of modern-day political aides. They were, I think the best word to describe these guys is sorcerers. And that's a very negative and loaded word, I know. But that's, I think, the most accurate description. They were sorcerers, official sorcerers to the king. They specialized in the dark magic arts. Witchcraft, wizardry, mediums, spiritualists, soothsayers, enchanters, fortune tellers, all this kind of stuff. That's who they were. They dabbled in the dark arts. They were expected, the magi were expected, to be able to perform signs. Like Pharaoh's magi, who we read about in Exodus, who performed a lot of the same signs as Moses when he was bringing about the plagues upon Egypt. They did signs and wonders for the king. They were expected to be able to interpret dreams like the magi of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, who tried to interpret the king's dreams but were unable to, and then Daniel stepped in and could. And they specialized in astrology in reading the stars and planetary alignments, but they didn't do that in the modern scientific sense. They did it really in a mystical sense, in a fortune-telling kind of sense. They looked at the stars and they used the alignment of the stars and the appearance of the stars to try and predict events that were happening on Earth. So these guys, they're not sort of wise old sages and kings. They are pagan sorcerers. That's the best way that I can give you to think about them. And the only reference we have as to where they come from is that Matthew tells us they're from the east. He doesn't really pin it down any more than that. So all we know is it was somewhere east of Palestine, where Jesus was born. There were magi in a range of different countries at the time. A lot of people think it was Babylon that they came from, possibly Babylon, possibly Persia, somewhere like that. If these magi came from Babylon, it adds another layer of significance to the story because through the Bible, Babylon is the symbol of opposition to God. It's the great enemy empire of God's people, the empire that destroyed the temple, the empire that carried God's people off into exile. So if these magi are from Babylon, they are not godly people from a godly country. They are godless pagan sorcerers from an evil empire. So this might be starting to change your impression of who these guys are. And isn't it absolutely stunning that these people were invited to be among the first worshippers of Jesus? Isn't that fantastic? That God didn't invite, firstly, the local Jewish rabbis and leaders and scribes and priests to come and visit Jesus. He invited pagan sorcerers from 800 kilometers away. 
to come and worship his son, Jesus. I think that tells us something about who Jesus is. I think that tells us something about who God is, that he would invite people like this to come and be worshippers of him, to come and pay homage to his son. So God got the attention of the Magi with something that would have been really familiar to them, a star, a star in the sky. At least that's how Matthew describes it, that a star rose, they saw it, and they followed it. Now, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for people to believe that the birth of a really important person was heralded by a star. That was often thought to be the case, that if you see an amazing cosmic phenomenon, it could be there's a royal dignitary being born or an incredible historical event that's happened. So this sort of stuff went on all the time. And it wasn't unusual either for the Magi to take a trip like this, to visit a king that had been born. That's part of what they did. They were like secretaries of state. And when a king was born or if a king had done something notable, uh, one country would send its Magi as ambassadors of that country to pay homage to the king to go and visit the king, perhaps to talk with the king and to bring the king some gifts. So in and of itself, what these magi do is not that unusual. This is part of their job description. They often followed stars and they often went on these kinds of pilgrimages. But one of the questions that arises here is what did they see that led them to Jesus? What did these magi see? Matthew calls it a star and some people think it was literally a star in the sky that moved and they followed it. Other people think it was some kind of collision of stars, like a supernova, that apparently creates a very bright light for a number of days, and maybe that's what they saw. Maybe it was some sort of alignment of planets that created some kind of visual effect that they followed. One interesting theory was written up in the quarterly journal of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1977, and it drew on some astronomy records, some Chinese astronomers who saw a comet in the sky in 5 BC. It lasted about 70 days. It was in the constellation of Capricorn. It's right around the time that Jesus is likely to have been born. And so some people believe that that comet that those ancient Chinese astronomers saw may have been what these wise men saw and followed. It's possible. There's a lot about that that does fit with what we know about the timing of the birth of Jesus. But the trouble I have with that is that Matthew talks about the star coming to rest right over the house where Jesus was. So how does a comet do that? How does a star do that? Something was specific enough that it moved and it stopped, and it was specific enough that it could designate one particular house out of all the other houses in the area. So we don't know exactly what this was, but... I tend to think maybe God just put some miraculous sign in the sky for these magi to follow. Maybe it wasn't literally a star. Maybe God just caused some supernatural phenomenon to appear that looked like a star and it, was, it moved and it stopped and it was specific enough that it could designate where Jesus was. There's all kinds of theories on this. If you, if you have a hankering to be more specific about the star of Bethlehem, then uh, the internet was probably made for you. So you can Google it and there's all sorts of people out there got theories on the star of Bethlehem. Whatever it was, the Magi follow the star and they come to Jerusalem. They don't come first to Bethlehem, but they go to the the capital city of the area, as Magi would have done. And the first thing they do when they get to Jerusalem is they report to the king, which was also customary for Magi to do, check in with the local ruling official. 
So they come to the king, and the king at this time in Judea is King Herod. He's also known as Herod the Great. He was a very colorful character, Herod the Great. He was a pretty brutal character. He was only a half-Jew, Herod. His father wasn't a Jew. His mum was. And for that reason, the Jewish people never fully accepted Herod as one of their own. They saw him as a bit of an outcast or a half-caste. But Herod was a pretty shrewd politician. He knew how to play politics. He knew how to grease up to the Romans who were in charge. He built all kinds of extravagant architecture and buildings to impress the Romans. And he also knew how to win the favor of the people that he was governing, the Jews. So he was the one who rebuilt the Jewish temple for the Jewish people, probably just to keep them on side. He knew how to play politics. He knew how to keep his constituents happy. But the one thing about Herod is that he was a really insecure guy, and he just could not handle any sort of threat to his power. Anyone who he perceived to be encroaching in his territory or threatening his throne, he organized to eliminate. So he had one of his wives assassinated. He had his mother-in-law assassinated. He had three of his sons assassinated. He had whole families that opposed him assassinated. He was a brutal guy. And it seems like the older that Herod got, the more suspicious that he became of anyone he perceived to be a threat to his power. So imagine how Herod felt when these magi from Babylon turned up and said, we've come to worship the one who has been born king of the Jews. Because the sign on Herod's door says king of the Jews. That's who he was. So he doesn't take particularly kindly to the fact that there is apparently another sheriff in town, another king of the Jews, who's already being paid homage by foreign emissaries. And not only that, but the Magi say this little subtle detail. They say he has been born king of the Jews. You notice that? Herod wasn't born king of the Jews. He was only a Jewish half-caste. But now the Magi say, we know the one who has truly been born king of the Jews, who has the full right and entitlement to the throne. So if Herod was a faithful Jew, what would he have done? He would have celebrated. He would have rejoiced because the true king of Israel is here. But he doesn't. He's immediately suspicious. And he immediately puts in a plan to eliminate this latest threat to his throne. And we'll find out next week how that plan unfolded. I think it's worth just pausing here, though, and considering that a lot of people in our own day respond to Jesus the way Herod did. A lot of people have that same suspicion towards Jesus, perceive him as a threat, perceive him as a hazard, perceive him as a danger to be avoided or possibly to be eliminated. Because at the end of the day, people want to be the king of their own castle. People want to be the captain of their own ship. They want to be in control. We want to be in control of our own lives. We want to be autonomous. We want to be independent people. And Jesus does come to challenge that. Jesus does come to challenge our place on the throne of our lives. And his desire is that we shift off the throne of our lives and allow him to be on it. And that we do what Herod couldn't bring himself to do. And that is submit ourselves to Jesus. To humble ourselves. To acknowledge his kingship, to bow our knee, pay homage to him, and allow him to be king in our lives and in 
our worlds. It's a hard thing to do because it means letting go and it means letting go of our own power base, our own lives. And maybe for some of you that's the challenge this morning is to allow Jesus to be king and to have that lordship, to have that rulership, leadership in your own lives. Perhaps you are like Herod, still clutching the reins of your own power out of your own insecurity and refusing to submit to Christ when he asks to be king, the king that he truly is. So Herod wasn't willing to do that. So he puts in a plan to take Jesus out. And the first thing he does is that he calls together his advisors, his consultants, the Jewish rulers, and he inquires of them as to where this child was supposed to be born. And they go back to the Old Testament and they go back to this prophecy in Micah that Matthew quotes in verse 6. And they tell Herod that Jesus, the king, is to be born in Bethlehem. This is the place. And so Herod turns to the Magi and says, okay, you go and worship him, but then come and report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And we know he's going to do exactly the opposite. But this is his plan to have the Magi identify exactly where Jesus is, then come back and let him know so that he can put his plan to assassinate Jesus into effect. So then the star that has been leading the Magi all the way from Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, all the way to Jerusalem, leads them that final step of the journey to Bethlehem. And it comes to rest right over this house where Jesus was. Now, probably that total journey took them around about two to three months to travel. About 800 kilometers from home to Bethlehem. Now, if the star appeared when Jesus was born, which it seems likely from details in Matthew's story that that's the case, then the Magi didn't show up until two or three months after Jesus had been born. So they really weren't part of the original manger scene. They weren't there at the same time the shepherds were. They came a lot later. And by that time, Matthew describes the place where Jesus is born as a house, which is interesting. He doesn't use the phrase stable or manger. He says the star came to the house and the Magi came to this, this house. It's the normal word for a residential dwelling. And that's probably because in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, the houses, it's a very hilly area, and the houses are built into the sides of cliffs. And for a lot of those houses, the family would have lived on the first floor, and then underneath, they dig into the cliff a stable for the animals. And it was literally a cave underneath the main house. That was where the animals slept. That was where their food was. So in a sense, Jesus was born in a house. He was just born in the basement of a house, in the cave, in the stable. Because the main dwelling area, the main first floor level of that house was full. And it might be that by the time the Magi get to him, that he's still in that stable cave area. Or it may be that maybe the family has taken compassion on him. And Jesus, Mary and Joseph are now living in that main area with the rest of the family, which would have been very tight. But perhaps after a couple of months, they had a bit of compassion on him. Either way, this is a house. It's a house where a family would have lived and somehow where Joseph and Mary and Jesus had found some room. So the Magi come to Jesus and as soon as they see him, it seems like they recognize him immediately. They recognize that even though he's in these incredibly humble circumstances, this is the one. This is the king. This is the one that they've come all this way to pay homage to. And they present him with these gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
We'll look at those gifts and their significance in just a minute. But I want just to draw for a second a comparison between this visit of the Magi to Jesus and another visitation in the Bible that has a lot of similarities. In the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 10, you have King Solomon, one of the great kings in Israel, and he receives a visit from a foreign dignitary as well, the Queen of Sheba. The Queen of Sheba travels from her home to Solomon. She's heard about his wealth. She's heard about his wisdom. She's heard about his incredible kingship. And she travels to visit Solomon, to speak with him, and and to test him with hard questions, is what the passage says. And she brings with her all these gifts, including the same types of gifts that the Magi brought. She brings gold. She brings spices for Solomon. And she comes and she sits down with him. Now, in, in some ways, there's a real contrast here because the Queen of Sheba is coming to look at the opulence of Solomon's reign, whereas the Magi encounter the humility, the lowliness of Jesus' birth. But I think both of these events tap into this deep stream that runs right through the whole Bible, where God is drawing the nations to himself. That's really what's happening here, that God is drawing those from outside of his people to himself, to Jerusalem, to Zion, to worship him. And he's gathering up the praises not only of his Jewish people, but of all nations. Psalm 72 expresses this beautifully. It says, verse 10, May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. This is God's desire throughout the Bible that all people from all nations would come and worship him and worship his king, whom he has appointed. So when you see the three wise men, when you see the magi there in the manger scene bowing down before Jesus, they represent something much bigger than themselves. They represent the fulfillment of this promise of God that the nations will come, that people from every tribe, every tongue, Every nation will come and worship the Messiah, Jesus. Not only Jews, but also non-Jews. Not only those with great high social status, but also those of lowly means. That's why you've got the Magi there alongside the shepherds. Well, not on the same night as we've learned, but two groups coming to visit Jesus from completely different rungs on the social ladder. God is showing us who Jesus is, that he is for everyone. He is for those who are near. He is for those who are far off. Those who are high in their own estimation. Those who are low. Those who are virtuous morally. Those who are sinful and far from God. Jesus is the king for every single one of us. It's what the Magi are telling us. It's why God would invite a bunch of pagan sorcerers from Iraq to come and worship Jesus. Because he desires the praise of all people. Jesus is the king for everyone. Now let me wrap this up just by looking briefly at these gifts that the Magi brought, because there's real significance here. And I thought that scene, that particular part of the Nativity movie was done really well in bringing out the significance of these gifts. The three gifts, and we know them well, they roll off our tongue, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold is pretty straightforward. It's the gift for royalty. It's the classic gift that you gave to kings. It's the king of metals given to the king of kings. 
And so gold designates Jesus as the king above all kings, the ruler above all earthly rulers, the Lord above all. That's who he is. Now, what about frankincense? It's a strange sort of gum resin that gets used to make various spices, but it has a particular significance in the biblical story. In the Old Testament, frankincense is the spice of the priests. And it's a spice that's used alongside many of the offerings that were presented at the temple by the priests. Frankincense was mixed into a range of different offerings. So that when people presented their offerings, when the priest came, presented these animal sacrifices or grain offerings or burnt offerings, whatever they presented, frankincense was mingled in so that the offering, even though it was a bit gory, would have this beautiful aroma to it. And the scent of frankincense would rise up from this offering. And it would symbolically fill the senses of God, making it a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to Him. Now, can you hear the significance of the Magi coming and bringing Jesus frankincense? What is being said here? Jesus is the priest of all priests. Frankincense is the gift for a priest. And it designates and represents Jesus being our great high priest. He is the one who has come to mediate between us and God, to broker that relationship between us and God, to represent us to God as a priest does, to represent God to us, to humanity, as a priest does. And he does this through the ultimate offering, not of a dead bull or goat, but the offering of himself, his own body given up, so that we can be brought into the very presence of God, the Holy of holies. Jesus is our priest, symbolized by the gift of frankincense. And then finally, myrrh, another spice that was used for various things. But interestingly, this is one of two times in Jesus' life where he receives the gift of myrrh. Anyone know what the other time was? It's when he was dead. Yeah, he was placed in the tomb and you have in John's gospel, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus coming with myrrh. And they anoint the body of Jesus. It was particularly used for burial, in burial practices. Isn't that incredible? Jesus, in his birth and in his death, receives the gift of myrrh. And I think there's a foreshadowing here. There's a beautiful hint of the sacrifice that Jesus will make on behalf of all humanity. It's why when the Magi in that, in that clip we saw bring the gift of myrrh, do you remember what that line he says? He said, the gift of myrrh, to honor thy sacrifice. This is foreshadowing the reality of Jesus' death, that he will die for all people to bring us to God. So you have these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and we sing about them and we talk about them, but when you line them up, those three gifts tell the gospel. Jesus is the king of kings, and yet he has become our priest He's become the one who mediates between us and God, bringing us to God. And the means by which he's done this is his own sacrificial death on the cross for us. Isn't that fantastic? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Jesus is our king. He's our priest. He's our sacrifice. When you talk about this as families, as friends, talk about the significance of those gifts and tell each other the gospel. Even though the Magi themselves probably would have had no idea. These would have just been the customary gifts that they gave to a foreign dignitary. In the fullness of the biblical revelation, we see deep symbolism here that tells us who Christ was, why he has come, and even the full significance 
of his death. And I think in response to that, what can we do but what the Magi did? Fall down and worship him and to adore him and to declare him our king and our priest and our sacrifice. Really, when we consider Jesus and we reflect on that scene, we've got to make a choice as to whether we're going to be like Herod, whether we're going to keep Jesus at arm's length, view him with suspicion, view him even with disdain, or whether we're going to come with the Magi and come into this stable, come into this cave, and bow down there in the dusty ground and pay homage to Jesus and worship him as they did. And we don't have the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh to give him, but God doesn't ask for those gifts from us anyway. He asks from us something even greater. He asks for the gift of our life. He asks us to bring our lives broken before him and lay them down so that the sweet aroma of our lives might be like that perfume rising up, filling the senses of God and offering that's pleasing to him. This is what Paul says. Our spiritual service of worship is the offering of ourselves as a living sacrifice. Our lives laid down, our lives poured out, our lives broken and surrendered to Jesus. Putting aside our own selfishness, putting aside our own agendas, putting aside our own interests, just coming honestly alongside shepherds, alongside sorcerers, and giving ourselves to Jesus. That's what he asks of us in worship. Not only here today as we sing songs, but as living sacrifices, continually broken, continually poured out, and continually surrendered to Christ, the King of Kings. And so we're going to do that as we finish our service this morning. We're going to respond in worship. We're going to sing a classic old Christmas carol, O Come, All Ye Faithful. And it has that beautiful refrain in it. Come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And I just encourage you as we sing it, I know you've sung it a thousand times, but can I just encourage you to really picture yourself there, to picture yourself in that scene alongside the shepherds, alongside the magi, surrounded by the stink of the animals, with the king of all kings lying in this bundle of hay in this feeding trough for animals, God made into flesh. Just allow yourself to feel the wonder of it. Allow yourself to feel the awe and respond to Jesus the King with adoration, adoring him and giving your life again. You picture your life laid down beside the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh, our lives poured down, the gift that God wants from us, our own selves, surrendered again to him to his will, to his kingship over our lives. That's what God is asking for from us. Let's pray together and then we're going to sing. Jesus, we, in a sense, we come to Bethlehem. We step into that cave and we make that choice to bow our knee, to worship you. Jesus, I pray that even though these words are so familiar to us, that we might say them with fresh conviction, with fresh power, and that they might bring about fresh transformation in our lives as we give ourselves back to you. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our king, that you are our priest, that you are our sacrifice. Thank you that you have come for us and on our behalf to give us life and hope and healing. We worship you in Christ's name. Amen. 
This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.